0: Um, so I'm Aaron, in case you don't know, and uh, my wife Sarah is here in um, the front. Um, we have three children, uh, Joseph, Callum and Tobita, um, and we've been asked to share a little bit about our story, um, our story of our time in Mozambique um, and how we got to, to go. And um, just to give you a little bit of, uh, of background, um, I'm just going to put the first slide up, uh, please. Um, just to show you where Mozambique is, for those who don't know, southern, southern Africa, southeastern um, Africa. Um, it used to be Portuguese, it used to be Portuguese, East Africa. Um, in 1964 to 1964 there was a, a war of independence, so that was an a 11-year period of fighting, and it became then Mozambique and became independent from Portugal. And then it went into another um, civil war from '75 right through to 1992, so you can imagine it was a country which had about 30 plus years of really brutal uh, conflict. Um, the language is Portuguese, obviously, because of the Portuguese um, uh, being the colonial country that, uh, that took it over. Um, the culture there is, is wonderful. It's, um, it's village life, it's very rural. Um, you have cities, obviously, where people come to for work and that sort of thing. But huge, huge, vast areas, um, which are just rural villages and, and communities. Um, and we were privileged to be in, in quite a rural, a rural setting. Um, in terms of climate, it's warm. If you think the last few days here in England have been warm, um, I would say that's fairly normal, and, um, and it gets hotter than that as well. So, um, it, uh, yeah, it's, um, that's just to give you a little bit of a background in case Mozambique isn't somewhere that you're that familiar with. Um, I suppose there's two things I'd like to try and share this evening and, and, uh, and, and communicate. Um, one is God's faithfulness, um, and I just want to, everything I share this evening really is about God's faithfulness um, and the second thing is how God holds our lives on a really thin little thread and if we will allow him, he'll take that thread and he'll weave it all over the place and as long as we trust him and if you, if you look at it at any moment you think gosh that could just all go horribly wrong or could just that thread could break but somehow when God's in control and he's, he's guiding our lives it is amazing um, where he takes us. So in 2014, we returned um, from Mozambique to Plymouth. Um, speaking personally, that was without doubt the very hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I would say it came close to completely breaking me. Um, and it probably took me about five or six years to get used to living in England. Um, Mozambique had become our home, it was completely our home. And uh, everything changed on one day. You leave, um, we came with two suitcases each back from Mozambique. That was it. We had to leave our our pets, we had to leave our friends, we left our home, we left our work, we left our ministry, everything. And on one day everything changes um, and you have to find a new new role and a new identity. Um, We first went to Mozambique in 1994, Um, so in actual fact our our Mozambique life, if you like, covered a 20 year period Um, and effectively it was the whole of our working lives up until um, six years ago, whenever it was we came back, 2014, eight years ago now. Um, so it's quite hard to know what to include in just an evening, sharing a few thoughts, because obviously twenty years is quite hard to compress into, you know, a short, a short, a short, um, a short session. Um, so I'm going to just try and sort of skim along and just catch a few snapshots to give you a little bit of flavour um, of, 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 of what life was like there. Um, but I'm actually going to start with how I first came to be in Mozambique, um, and particularly thinking about that thin little thread that can just snap so easily, in that thread that lo- the Lord holds our lives on. So, I don't know about you, but um, I'm not a natural linguist. Um, at the age of 13, I did my grade 3 French and German exams, and I got 16% and 12% <laughs> respectively. <laughs> so, I hope I've already set my credentials out as a, a bit of a loser at languages. Um, at 15, I then took my French O-level, so I'm not even a GCSE, I'm afraid. I've now shown my age. So um, I was the last year of O levels, though, if that's a, any consolation. Um, anyway, I failed my French O level. Um, so I retook it, and I failed it again. So at 19, I was now studying in Manchester. I was doing civil engineering, and uh, the option to do French came up. Now, I don't know why, but I thought that would be a good idea. <laughs> I should have known better. Anyway. I I started on the the French module alongside the engineering um, and I continued to fail and uh, it wasn't a very successful part of my my degree course. We got halfway through the second year of of our studies and uh, and one of the lecturers came to us and said, "Um, those of you who are doing French, would you like to go to France for a year? I thought, that sounds pretty good. I said, yeah, I'll I'll do that. That sounds fantastic. And, of course, it was just the beginning of the whole, you know, joining with the European Union and all the rest of it. You know, so this was the new Erasmus programme being rolled out. Now, we happened to be the first year to go from uh, my my department, so they literally would take anybody. Um, You didn't actually have to be able to speak French to go. They just wanted willing, you know, kind of guinea pigs. And so I said, yeah, that's fine. I'll go to France. So, anyway, age 21, I found myself living in Lille, studying um, engineering in French, and, um, and that was in itself fairly interesting. Um, and uh, we had a... You'll, you'll see in a way while I'm telling you all this, but we had a, a group of us, four of us from overseas, all sharing a house in Lille. Um, and um, one, one day, um, two of my housemates went into the centre of town. We lived on the outskirts to the local supermarket, which was called Unique, um and they were just getting some groceries. And as it happened... In the queue, in the, in, the, in the same shop, further down, was a group of girls who were English. And they heard each other talking in English and they sort of got chatting. Um, and as a result of this chance encounter, we got to know a group of also Rasmus students but from Warwick University. And they were doing law and they lived on completely the opposite side of Lille. So had my friends not gone to Unique at that precise moment, we had, would have, there would have be been no chance we'd have ever met this group of girls. Anyway, we all became friends, and at the weekends we used to get together and do different things and have barbecues and that sort of thing. Anyway, roll on another year. I was in my final year back in Manchester, um, and on one hand, things were going well. I was successful with my studies, and I thought that was all going to go well. Um, However, I had a very real sense of emptiness, and I didn't know the Lord. Real lack of purpose, um, but I was looking for opportunities abroad. I was looking at um, VSO. I was looking at Operation Rally. Um, I had a job offer in Singapore to go and work there. So I was looking at all these different options, but I just wanted to do something a bit different. And in my last term, I think it was after the Easter holidays, I was driving back from Oxford, which is where I lived, up to Manchester, and I thought, oh, I'll pop into Warwick and see the girls and see how they are. So I pulled into Warwick, and um, we were all chatting, and then one of the girls called Emma said to me, I said, oh, you want to go abroad next year? I said, yeah. She said, well, funny enough, I'm going to Mozambique this summer, on a uh, on a building team, why don't you get in touch with the office in Birmingham and maybe there's an opportunity for you to go there, so I thought, oh that's interesting, you know but it was a bit, that's going to be a bit dodgy but anyway, we'll give it a go, so I, um, so I phoned up the office in, in Birmingham, spoke to a chap called John, I said, look John, I'm doing civil engineering and quite interested in working abroad, um, and uh, he said, well we've got stuff going on in Mozambique, I said, oh that sounds interesting, I said, well you, know, you tell me a bit more about it. We've got some building work going on and different projects. I said, well, that sounds great. So said, well, you can go. I was like, well, that's literally on a 10-minute phone call. I was like, really? <laughs> and that was it. So at the age of 23, I, I set out for Mozambique. And that was how I, I first went to Mozambique. And had my friends not gone to Pris Unique one, whatever it was, wet Thursday afternoon in Lille, I would never have gone to Pris Unique. Sorry, I would never have gone to Mozambique. Um, if we could have the next photo, please, uh, Matt. Um, and as I flew out to Mozambique, there's ha- there happened to be somebody sitting next to me who you might recognise. Now, this is testimony to how well I treat my wife, because she looks exactly the same <laughs> 20, 27 years later. Um, and, and actually, I believe inside I also look the same, if outside I'm <laughs> slightly different. So, so that was Sarah and I flying out to, uh, to Mozambique. And as it happened, Sarah was also going out to volunteer at the same time as I was. And um, so I should now flip a little bit to Sarah's story because she's asked me to to share for her. So um, Sarah had um, just completed doing two years in childcare um, after finishing college and so she'd been working for two years to save up to go go to Mozambique. And she'd had a friend um, who'd gone, I think, about two or three years previously and had said to her, oh, Sarah, you'll absolutely love um, the orphanage there, and it's just perfect for you. You should go out there when, when you can. So she'd been saving up, and she'd got the money together, and then she was going out for a year to, to serve, um, in, uh, serve there. And she always wanted to um, be abroad, in mission. She hadn't wanted to settle in England. Um, and so now at the age of 20, um, she was setting out for Mozambique, and she was sitting next to her future husband. But she didn't know that at the time. So, so that was 1994, um, at the time, Mozambique was the poorest country in the world. That's according to the United Nations um, table of, of poverty. So in 1904 it was the poorest country. Um, there had been 32 years of constant war. The entire infrastructure was just completely decimated. Um, our nearest actual telephone, if you want to make a proper phone call, was about 40, 40 miles away. Um, we could get a fax to there, which cost £7 a sheet. Um, there was no, obviously no, no emails, no cell phones or anything like that that, that was many years ahead um, there were only three primary tarmac roads in the entire country just to give you an idea of the level of, of, of poverty um, and those roads were bisected by tank traps um, and, and there were mines on either side of the road so you know, if you stopped the car you needed to spend a penny you mustn't stand off any of the tarmac because the size of the road would be mined so it was, it was a really raw um, kind of basic place but, but wonderful um, and the interesting thing was so we flew into Zimbabwe and we travelled down through Zimbabwe and at that time in 94 Zimbabwe was really a very prosperous and very happy country and as you came across the border into Mozambique it just felt different, I remember that first time crossing um, it, was quite, it was getting towards dusk um, and it just you could feel a sense of oppression, you could feel the sort of legacy of communism, um, even in just in the uniforms of the guards um, and, and it was a, it was a really um, very very different feel to it Anyway, um, we started working at a local mission um, and uh, the team there was a mixture of uh, local staff and international uh, missionaries um, and they were involved in education, involved in childcare um, with the two primary, primary areas of work. So Sarah was involved in the orphanage and she was looking after children in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, the youngest age group, the infants up to two years old um, and I was involved in um, building projects so the whole place was it was an old colonial farm that was being sort of re- redeveloped as a, as a mission station and uh, orphanage and um, schools and that sort of thing um, and so I was, I was involved in building work there running some building projects um, including building a new baby unit um, for the work that Sarah was doing because at that time the next slide please Matt the, uh, the babies were living um, in a shipping container so you can see here sorry these, these are photographs taken off old photographs but you can see it's literally just a, a shipping container with beds in, and that was the accommodation for the babies. And this little fellow here is a little boy called Papieto, and uh, we knew Papieto for many years. He grew right up through, uh, to a teenager and, and beyond. So, But that was, uh, one of, he is one of uh, Sarah's first babies um, at the orphanage. Um, so I was involved in building work, and Sarah was involved in the orphanage. Um, and at the time, Sarah had already, already had a really strong relationship with the Lord. She'd been baptised the previous year. Um, and, uh, and she'd gone with a very strong sense of faith and commitment. Um, I'd grown up in church, but had really walked away um, from my faith. Uh, I'd recognised that God still existed, um, but I was just doing my own thing, and I had lots of questions. Um, however, what I saw in Mozambique, um, I saw people living differently because of what they believed, um, and that because of their faith, their life was actually different. Um, they, they served and they gave and they lived differently. And I hadn't seen that before. Um, it was evident that Jesus was their Lord, and it showed in real, living, active faith. Um, and within a very f- short period of time of exciting weeks, as I, I relearned and, and, re- and discovered the Lord for myself, I gave my life to the Lord. So I went on mission and got saved, which is probably <laughs> is one way of doing it. And of course, at that point, the, the, the real adventure began. Um, and... And just touching back on this idea of the thread of grace that God sows through our lives, you know, that thread predates us knowing, acknowledging him. He knows us even before we know him. And that thread just just runs through. Um, and, the, and the amazing thing is that there are also things that we don't know we don't recognise at the time. And m- my mum told me later, um, it was maybe a year later or something, that there was an older lady in our church that we'd gone to as children called Muriel. And Muriel was a, a missionary in India for five years, and she often used to talk about it, and it was a huge experience for her in her life. But anyway, from a certain point in her life, Muriel committed to praying for our family every single day. And, and I believe I found the Lord because of Muriel's prayers. Um, and we don't know, do we, that the, the impact our prayers can have on other people's lives um, and, and how important that is to God's thread weaving through our lives. So six weeks after we arrived in Mozambique, um, Sarah's dad tragically died, um, and we were actually in Zimbabwe at the time, and uh, she had to fly straight back to, um, to the UK for three months, and that was obviously uh, a really traumatic time for her and family at that time, um, and then she came back um, about, yeah, about three months later and carried on. So during the following months um, that we were in Mozambique, because we had both originally committed to go there for about um, a year... Um, I became particularly aware of this massive skills shortage. So you'd had a war that had been going on there for 32 years. All the older men who'd had the skills, um, particularly talking about manual skills, carpenters, you know, mechanics, electricians, etc. etc All those, those trades, they'd all gone to war and, and so many of them had died. And then the skills just hadn't been passed down to the young guys. So the young guys were coming up and there was simply nobody to teach them. Um, there were no secondary schools in, uh, in the area. The nearest secondary school was about 40 miles away and that was one secondary school for the entire province. Now, a province is probably the size of, I mean, bigger than the southwest, much bigger than the southwest, and there's one secondary school for the entire province. So you can imagine um, how difficult it was to get second le- you know, ne- the next second-level education and there were no technical schools. Um, there was no technical training at all. So th- there was a lack of hope and lack of opportunity. There were young guys going through primary school and then there was just nothing um, to do. And so I, with the building work that I was doing and the projects I was getting involved in, I was also taking young lads from the orphanage um, and they were coming to work alongside me. And from that, the sort of the seed started or was planted to, to set up a training centre. Um, and within about six months of being in Mozambique, I had a very strong sense that this is what we should be doing and this is what God is calling us to do. Um, and so we committed to setting up um, a technical training college for training young adults um, to give them a hope and a future, um, and we committed to that um, by about summer '95, um, and we also committed to each other and got engaged in uh, 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 about that time as well. So fast forward, um, we came back to the UK um, very beginning of '96. Um, we got married a bit later that year, and then we went to came and lived just outside Plymouth in Modbury, and we were going to Mutley Baptist Church. And we were preparing to return to to Mozambique. Um, And during that time, we organised two containers um, of equipment and uh, a Land Rover and all the usual stuff you take when you're going back to Africa. Um, It was all sort of fairly basic stuff. I think there's another photo, probably, Matt. There we go. So that's one of the containers packed up, and uh, that was the group of us all just having packed the containers. Uh, And so May 98, we set out back to Mozambique uh, with a one way ticket each, not just one ticket. Uh, we had £100 for ourselves, that was it, and then we had some money to pay for the import duty for the, computer, uh, for the containers, uh, which wasn't quite enough, but we, it was in the end. Um, and over the next three years, um, we, so we arrived back in Mozambique, and over the next three years we found a piece of land um, that we got the permission for to build on, so that was a lengthy process that took about a year to sort out all the documentation and paperwork for that. Um, And then we started building the school, um, putting buildings up. We had to put borehole in for water. Uh, We had to bring power in from about um, a kilometre away, so we had to put pylons up and bring power in. And then we started putting together the curriculum, training the staff, um, and and getting the whole thing up and running from scratch. And it was a real journey of faith. You know, in in the early years, we had no reputation. Um, we couldn't you know we couldn't say all we had was a dream an idea we couldn't sort of say oh look this is what we've done or this is what we're doing it's just like this is what we hope to do Um, and so really in all honesty we just simply prayed um, and the lord provided and it was amazing you know and um, the we had we'd managed to put together some money which we had for the first buildings to go up and then the uh, the planning permission process was so drawn out and so expensive and we had by the time we paid for all the permits they'd actually use up all the money we had to build the building so so we um, thought okay well the only thing to do is start so we'd literally got some local guys um, and we just started digging out the foundations for the first building and I remember thinking do you know what I'm going to look like an absolute chump because just now we're going to have a hole in the ground and I haven't got money to buy the concrete to put in it but that didn't happen money came in and we never ran out we never stopped and we never ran any debt and the first foundations went in, the first building went up, and so it went on The different buildings were built. And um, the, there were certain principles that we, we, we really wanted to sort of imbibe within the, within the school and the training centre. And one of them was excellence. Um, at that time in Mozambique, um, there, was, there was almost an attitude particularly amongst aid, aid organisations, that it didn't matter how rubbish something was done, because it was just Mozambique, or it was just Africa, or it was just a poor country, or it was just a country that was you know, developing. And people didn't take care, didn't take trouble. Stuff was just chucked together. Programs were put together. And, and it, there was a real lack of excellence and lack of quality. And, um, and we just said right from the get-go, we want to do things differently. You know, I really believe, um, you know the Lord's Prayer, where, where um, it says, uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. That actually wherever we are and wherever we work and wherever we live it must feel and look different you know when when God put the universe together he didn't just chuck it together and hope for the best it's exquisite it's perfectly balanced it's absolutely mind-bogglingly amazing and that perfection we can't quite get to but we can stretch in that direction you know and I believe that whatever we do it should be done to excellence and that was our 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 And one of our sort of get goes from the beginning was we just want that to be um, the principle that we build this place on. And not only just in how it's physically built, but then how the staff are trained, how the students are treated, and how um, people are inspired to to come to know Jesus. Um, Another thing that was critical was just this need to break dependency. Um, Back in 94, Mozambique was um, a country that was receiving huge amounts of aid. Um, And so what that tends to do is aid comes in and people tend to sit down and just, and just become quite passive because they're just being given you know and they just wait for the next thing to be given and it's it's really really it breaks people's spirit you know it's, it's fine in an emergency it's necessary in an emergency but you've got at some point you've got to transition from that to actually build up people and, and build their self-esteem and build their, their skills and their, and their self-belief um, and so we really believed that we needed to break that dependency and there was a There was a a section in 1 Thessalonians that I really felt the Lord um, gave us very clearly, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. I won't read it, but basically there's a few principles in it. And one is to aspire to live quietly. The next one is to mind your own affairs. The next one is to work with your hands. Tick. Um, Command respect. Nothing wrong with that. And then to be dependent on nobody. And, and that, that was kind of the core, um, the core of what we were doing and and, and, uh, and so as we were training the local staff and, and building the curriculum and putting the school together, uh, these were some of the um, things that we were um, kind of if you like the, the core principles that we were using and so we took in our first students perhaps to have a, a next photo please um, so this is, this actually isn't the first group of students but it's just a group of students and it gives you an idea of, of, of uh, of what was going on there so we had metalworking, we had motor mechanics we had carpentry we had gar- vegetable gardening going on and we focused very much on holistic training so it was about pr- practical skills so they need the guys needed practical skills to to work they needed them business skills to be able to take that those practical skills and actually either create their own business or become effective in a, in, in in a in another company and then, and then we also gave discipleship. So we had that, all those three components going on. And one of the really exciting things was that we found that as, as, the, as the students found that what we were teaching them practically was bearing fruit and they were creating and making beautiful furniture or, or metalwork or fixing vehicles, or whatever they were doing, and they, they couldn't believe that they could do that. And suddenly the instruction they'd been given had worked. They trusted us in the practical instruction. They started to come to us with their things at home. And they'd they'd trust us with spiritual um, questions. And and they'd start talking about... you know, just just different dynamics within the home situation, or how they should how should they should treat their wives. We used to do a, one of the one of the um, topics we used to teach on was was um, godly families. We used to do a whole term just teaching on godly families. One of my favourite subjects, and it was great fun. We used to have these fantastic discussions all about you know should you do the washing up and all that sort of thing. You know, and uh, you wouldn't have those conversations in England, but uh, in Mozambique well they're quite important. So um, so every 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 cycle of students, we have a, had a two year cycle. Um, and at any one time we had about 60 students in the college Um, and we were just privileged to see lives changed um, through that time and at the end of their training they would get um, a a kit of tools so they've got the tools to go and uh, and work Um, and then probably somewhere between 80 and 90% of our graduates ended up in full-time employment which when you consider in Mozambique you probably at that time we were talking about maybe 70% 80% unemployment We we were achieving pretty much the flip of that um, and I just give glory to God for that. I really do. Um, and at the same time, we also started to turn Tarira into more of a business model. So we were doing um, we were doing local manufacture and selling that into the tourism industry. So that was generating local income. And we got Tarira to, which is the sorry, it's the name of the training centre, to about ninety percent self funding within within Mozambique at that time as well. Um, To give you an idea of what it sort of looks like, I've got a short film now, it's about 10 10 or 12 minutes long, which a friend of mine took um, about 2012, Um, and hopefully that will kind of give you a bit of a feel, better than me just sort of chattering away of of what it's like. So perhaps we could show that now, uh, Matt, if that's okay. So that was very much kind of the the core of, or a big part of our sort of work and ministry there. Um, And Dika, who was speaking at the end, he said he wanted to to have his own workshop uh, and he, he actually does have his own workshop down in Bayer, which is the port city about two hours away and he employs people and has a thriving business so um, you know i give the glory to god for that really and i'm grateful that he's been able to realize his dream um, so while all of this was happening and we were building to rear up and uh and and, uh, uh and and setting up the training center and the rest of it and of course family life still carries on um and sarah was still involved um, in the orphanage um, and then she was involved in a community programme where we were um, caring for children um, in, the, in the extended families. So one of, the, one of the challenges you have when children come from the community into an orphanage, it's then really difficult to get them back from the orphanage back into their families. It's much better if you can keep children, obviously, with the extended family, even if the parents have died. Um, and uh, Sarah was involved in that, and, uh, and we were actually sourcing the funding for about a five-year period for the programme. We ended up with about 500 um, infants um, on, on that program at that time, um, and so that was taking up a huge amount of sarah 's time um, and then we started to have our own family as well, um, so she was juggling um, the demands of two two boys and uh, and also um, the, uh, the, the, the the work as well um, and, our, our, and our children had a very kind of barefoot childhood there 's a next photo I think coming up uh, Matt. Uh, you can see, uh, so that was, that's Callum, our middle one. He's now, um, he's now actually doing uh, carpentry and joinery. So he's sort of stayed within the building industry. But you can see he's there already with his bare feet uh, on, on a work site, uh, checking things out. Um, in the bottom there, they're, they're eating sugarcane, um, again barefoot. And then in the top photo, Callum's there in, uh, in school, um, again with bare feet. So that was very much their childhood. And, and the children, the, both the boys went into the local primary school um, with the local village children. Um, in the mornings um, and then in the afternoon they uh, did homeschooling with Sarah so you can imagine Sarah's life was was fairly busy um, and then later on um, we put them actually into an English um, speaking school which was about an hour, just over an hour away um, which meant we had to leave about half six in the morning, take them in, drop them off, drive back again and then drive again, pick them up at the end and bring them back so it was like four hours driving a day um, so that was also um, t- 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 took a lot of time um, and uh, and at the same time of all of this, our family kind of kept growing. Um, and there's another photo, I think. Um, I'm not sure which one is it. Um, that's it, yeah. So Rebecca, who's the older girl there, Rebecca came to join our family um, when she was 18. And uh, she lived with her for five years. Um, so she was uh, very much part of our family. She's now married and has her, her own family. Um, and then Tabitha joined us when she was 20 months old. Um, and she's, obviously you've all seen Tabita running around, she's, she's here and she's in the youth here with us um, and uh, so we had to do all the adoption process for Tabita and also for her citizenship for the UK so that was all, was all going on at the same time. So I hope that's kind of given you just a bit of a, a snapshot of, of Mozambican life. It's, it's quite hard to sort of know what to, um, what to kind of focus in on um, but it, it's definitely a world of extremes um, I would really like to kind of encourage, I hope it's been an encouragement and I hope maybe some of you will think about either going into missions cross-culturally um, or getting involved in some way, either by supporting people who are in missions um, or just, just considering it. If, if, if nothing else this evening, have a think about um, cross-cultural missions. It's, 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 it's wonderful, it's, it's challenging, it's difficult, it's, you make wonderful friends. We, we've got some of our very best friends um, from our time there seeing lives changed and transformed is absolutely fantastic. It's not without its challenges and heartbreaks. Um, We could tell you all sorts of health stories, um, fantastic snake stories, um, armed robbery stories, um, being the first responder on road accidents, being a hearse, being a maternity ambulance, you know, you name it, you end up doing absolutely everything, but, but that's part of life. Life there is very raw. And then in sort of bizarre little twists, you end up doing things like making a chair for the president of Mozambique, or meeting Princess Anne, you know, it's kind of, it really is a, a, a life of extremes. Um, but in all of that, I could just say that God is so faithful. And um, one of my favourite verses is, is in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And that has very much been our experience over the years. Um, and the interesting thing is that if, where we at the time when we came back to, to England, it was almost, that was almost another kind of adventure venture for us in, in its own way but where we got to by the time we were coming back we wouldn't have seen from when we set out if you know what I mean 20 years earlier um, and I think the only thing I would say is that it's just so important to be obedient just to the next step we don't have to understand the 20-year plan we don't have to understand what it's going to look like in five years time but we just need to be obedient to the next step and then just trust God that he will lead us and if we do that it's amazing where he'll take us so I hope that's an encouragement. Thank you for listening. Yeah.